Okay, church. We will uh, start in the second here. Have you uh, turned to Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1? Let's give you a couple seconds to find it. So why don't we stand and read Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the last sermon ending 2018. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them and said, asked where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called a magi, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been born by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, we've heard these words uh, many times uh, from different pastors throughout the years and uh, different churches and different experiences as we've grown up and every person brings a unique uh, twist to the story in terms of how we understand it and what we highlight and accent. Pray God that uh, the way you've determined me to go this week that um, there be some new truths also presented to the church that may have not been seen before and also truths reinforced that have been uh, just to solidify why we're celebrating Christmas, which is to remember your birth and what that accomplished for us. So, yeah, we just pray that your spirit goes before me and uh, we have a great time of encouragement uh, heading into the Christmas, uh, well, as we enter the Christmas and continue the Christmas season. So we thank you for our time. In Christ's name, amen. So kids, what are you hoping to get for Christmas this year? Train set? A horse. Wow. How do you put a horse in a box? (laughs) Well, who else has got some thoughts on what they like? A Lego Technic set. Well, I guess it's easier than a horse. (laughs) Groceries. Excellent. Yeah. You need ketchup for your craft dinner. Craft <laughs> yeah. dinner? Yeah. Good. Do you? Okay. Perfect. Well, do you guys know, kids, what Jesus received for, for his birthday? Yeah. Did he get anything else? 
Gold, good for you. Do you know why he got those gifts and what those gifts mean? King? Okay. What else? Okay. That is a true statement. Okay, so we know for sure, for sure he's king, and I would put Messiah underneath that as a, as a thing. So we still have to learn what frankincense and myrrh are for. So let's, we're going to spend today's message actually speaking about the significance and purpose of the gifts from the wise men, and also who they were at the time of Christ. But before we dive in, I want to spend a little time dispelling some of the myths that surround the wise men at Christmas time. Um, myths that virtually the whole world has come to believe, even in Christianity, through nativity scenes that we buy and see on the lawns and children's books that we read and movies. And I thought, just for fun, why don't we play a one-minute clip of what you and I have typically come to believe about the wise men at Christmas. Let's see if this baby will work. talk about four myths and potentially five myths that exist surrounding the story. First myth is this, that the wise men were present at the birth of Christ. Look at verse 1 with me in Matthew chapter 2. Now after that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Where was Jesus born? And Bethlehem. Where did the Magi arrive? Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 2, the shepherds are told by an angel that they'd find Jesus wrapped in clothes in a manger in Bethlehem. In obedience, they went there and found him there. There's no record, however, in any of the gospel or any New Testament scripture of the wise men ever worshipping Jesus at the manger in Bethlehem with the shepherds. This idea that they traveled for days and uh, all of a sudden they arrive at the stable right at the right moment when Jesus is born and hopped off their camels to come see Jesus as just completely a wise tale and a, and a myth. The second reason that uh, this is a myth, besides the fact that the text tells us he arrived in Jerusalem, 
and not Bethlehem, was there was no stable in this scene when the wise men showed up. Look at verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. There's no stable when the wise men showed up. There's no manger. They show up in a home to come and worship him. So the first myth is that the wise men were present at the birth of Christ and were in Bethlehem. The second myth is that Jesus was an infant when they met him. Again, there's clues in the text because he's not in the stable, but he's in a house. But really, there's more to it. The first major clue is Herod's reaction in finding out from the Magi there was a new king on the scene. And in one of the saddest stories in all the Bible, we see this in verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all in its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Now, the Magi determined this time based on the star that showed up back in their homeland of Babylon before they traveled east to come to Jerusalem. But the point being here is that after hearing the, the, the Magi's story, Herod thought, in order to encapsulate all the baby boys that could be the Messiah, I'm going to start from two years old and work my way down, just to make sure. So clearly, this story is at least two years old by the time Herod hears it. So I'm not saying that Jesus was two, but he might have been a year and three months, or a year and four months, or whatever, or even 11 months, however old he was, because there's no timeline. But Herod thought, I'm going to start at two and work my way down. So clearly here by this that we know he's not an infant like wrapped in a, in a manger in swaddling clothes. But the second clue he's not an infant is the use of the word child in verse 7. In verse 7 it says that Herod secretly called the Magi... I'm oh, sorry, that's a mistake. Yeah. Well, it must be in verse... Uh, verse 8? Verse 8, okay, yeah, verse 8, sorry. Yeah. So to determine a child. While it's true that this word child in Greek can be used for an infant in the New Testament, it's also used for little children. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. Listen to this use of the word child. But to what do I compare this generation? He's speaking of Israel. Jesus says they're like children who sit in the marketplaces and call to their playmates. Well, infants don't call to their playmates. They don't sit in marketplaces with their parents. Here we have this, this same use of the word child there. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, describing the scene of Jesus at the manger, he's described there as a baby, which is a different Greek word than used here in Matthew. Myth number three. There was a bright shining star illuminating the stable at Jesus' birth. While it's true the star led the wise men, it didn't, it did, and it did rest in Bethlehem, as we see here in the text, it wasn't over a manger with the shepherds present, and Joseph and Mary staring at wonder, in wonder and awe at these wise men who show up. It's a nice and warm, fuzzy idea, but it's just a bunch of spiritual baloney. There was no star leading them at the manger that or at the manger that day. It appeared in Jerusalem. Sorry, it led them from Babylon to Bethlehem, but rested later on when they're in a house and when he's much older. The third myth is that this bright shining star was illuminating the stable at his birth. Or sorry, I've already done that one. The fourth myth was that their names, the names of the wise men were Belshazzar of Arabia, Melchior of Persia, and Gaspar of India. 
or a version of that. There's no biblical record anywhere of the names of the wise men. It does not exist. According to David Jeremiah, listening to a sermon he did on this, he says that these names apparently didn't come until the 7th century in an opera that was written so that they could just give titles to the, the audience as they were listening. But there is no biblical record of these guys having these three names. And I'm guessing that many of you have played the wise men or been part of a play in your Sunday school in which they're all, everyone signed up to be Melchior or whatever. And it's just absolute biblical halloui again. But I would suggest a fifth myth that exists regarding the wise men is the number of wise men. There were three wise men. Where did we get three from? Because there were three gifts. Um, however, there's no scriptural evidence to support that only three people showed up. And we're going to see this in a second. We're going to talk about the wise men, who they were, what they, where they came from. You're going to see that they, they, were, they were from nobility. They were, they were uh, officers to the king and were high-ranking officials. So these people um, highly were likely to travel, just the three of them, across a desert in isolation. They likely had a huge entourage of, that followed them that were acted as their, uh, like to, to protect them. They probably had some army people like, uh, or military like even accompanying them to make this huge trek. And to suggest there's only three is actually, again, just a, a guess on our Western civilization's part to make sense of the story because of the three gifts. But there, again, I'm saying, suggesting it's a problem myth because it could have been just three, but it's very, very unlikely that just three lonely camel jockeys went across the desert and landed in, in Jerusalem. It's just not going to be the reality of the situation. So who were they and where did they come from? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we get a very, very detailed answer. He says, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. There you go. Got it? Okay, good. Well, according to extra-biblical sources that I was studying and reading, the Magi were believed to be a priestly line of people that originated from the Medes. Uh, the Medes were a tribe of people traced back to the days of Abraham and still existed in the time of Jesus. But the key with this is that they weren't a Jewish tribe. They weren't Jewish. They were Gentile. They were Gentile. They originated in Babylon. Now, very similar to the Levitical priesthood, they were similar to the Levitical priesthood in that, they, that they, their position was a hereditary one. You were born into that position and it was given to you as a birthright. So you were a priestly line within this sort of like Gentile pagan land. These men were known to be well-educated, uh, very learned in the wisdom of the ancient East, apparently skilled in mathematics, astronomy, uh, even astrology, which is fortune-telling. And as we can see in the, we're going to see in a second, interpretation of dreams. Uh, they're also known to be wealthy and very influential, especially in the political realm. And it was, it was, it was a result of their influence and, and uh, their brain power, I guess. They were often in advisory positions to the princes and kings who were in charge of governing the land. Hence the title, Wise Men, because they, they provided wise counsel to these kings. So this is all extra-biblical, and so you think, well, you, know, you can take it with a grain of salt. However, what's interesting is the Bible does support many of these claims. And you can see this actually occurring in the text in the book of Daniel. Now, we don't have time to go through it all now, but a good study for you is to go through the first five chapters of Daniel and write down every time you see the word wise men, wise men, wise men, and see what role they're operating in. And what's interesting is there's different titles given to these wise men. They're described 
in chapters 2 through 5 as being magicians, conjurers, which are like enchanters, uh, diviners, which we would call, uh, some of your translations will have astrologers, which supports the extra biblical resources, and referred to as the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans. Now, I said earlier that the, the extra biblical resources says that, that they, they were believed to come from the, the days of Abraham back in Babylon. Well, what's interesting is when Abraham was called out of, of uh, his homeland, he was called out of the land of the Chaldeans, called out from Ur of the Chaldeans. So again, they're called the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, all through the book of Daniel. So we see evidence of, uh, of the scriptures supporting this extra biblical work. But probably the most significant thing though is we see them operating in the key roles. I said they were highly influential, they came from the line of nobility, and they provided counsel to the princes and kings. Well, that's exactly what we see in the book of Daniel. What are they doing? What are they actively doing with Nebuchadnezzar? They're trying to interpret all of his dreams. And Daniel gets called in because these conjurers, these magicians, these magi, these, uh, these wise men, they can't interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. And so they have Daniel come in because, of course, he's got, God gave him the dream, so he's going to speak on behalf of God. And he, he, he gets the dream correct. And then now Daniel gets promoted to the line of advisory to the king, the chief advisor. So again, we can see the evidence of these wise men, these magi, in the book of Daniel, operating very much the way the extra-biblical resources show. But probably the most important thing about these wise men, for these magi, from our perspective, is what their belief system was. See, that they departed very much, I believe, from what we read here, from the beliefs of their land that were commonly held. They, they might have been Gentiles and raised in pagan culture, but something happened in their life where they changed where their hopes and their beliefs were. Look at uh, what, they, what, what they came to Jerusalem for in, in, in 2 verse 2. He says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. You see, what we know about these guys for sure is that they studied the Hebrew scriptures, somehow got a hold of the Hebrew scriptures, and had come to believe that everything written in them about the Messiah and who Jesus was, was true. It must have been true. They traveled 700 miles or whatever it was to arrive in Jerusalem, followed this star to arrive to, to come pay homage to this person they believed to be a king. And so much so that they come to worship this king. That's an incredible thought when you look at their background. And we're going to see in a second here that these gifts reflected that belief. The gifts reflected their belief about who the Messiah was. But before we get into the gifts, I just want to say this. Um, have you ever wondered how they might have heard or come to know about Jesus living that far away and how they come to believe that Jesus was the king of the Jews and come to put all this together? I know I have. I'm going to give you a suggestion from the scriptures, although I cannot prove it and give evidence for sure because it doesn't ever tell you, but this is my best guess and this is what I'm going to pass down to my children as they get older. Do you remember in the context of Daniel what's going on there? It's, it's Israel in captivity in Babylon around 600 BC, so about 600 years before this event occurs. 
and Daniel gets, is, um, is, a, is an exile from Jerusalem into Babylon, and he's serving in the uh, pagan courts, in, in the uh, pagan temples and uh, you know, under Nebuchadnezzar. And nobody can interpret the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has. So they hear about this Daniel that can do so, and he comes and interprets the dreams, and what happens is he gets promoted. Nebuchadnezzar finds favor with him because he can interpret his dreams, and he gets promoted, and he rises to a position of prominence. Now what's interesting about that is Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 verse 48 of Daniel says this, he made him the chief prefect or ruler over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel is the chief jack daddy over the entire magi in Babylon as a Jew. But it gets even cooler in Daniel 4.9. This is the king speaking. O Belteshazzar, which was his Babylonian name, chief of the magicians. Chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I've seen along with its interpretation. In chapter 5, verse 11, when Nebuchadnezzar dies and his son comes in his place, another strange event happens and to this king, and they can't solve it, and all the magi come in, and all the magicians, they come and try to solve the dream, or the, the event, I should say, they can't do it. And then the queen comes in and says, have you heard about uh, your dad's uh, guy that used to interpret dreams for him? And what's interesting in 511 is, they, she says, this guy was known as the chief of the magicians as well, in that context as, as well. So we have this idea of this Hebrew, Bible-believing, God-fearing man living 600 years prior as the chief over the wise men in Babylon. Could he have not, as they're teaching information, be one helping them work through the Hebrew Scriptures to understand things like Micah 5.2? There'll be a ruler that comes out of um, uh, Judea born in Bethlehem. How about Psalm 22, about this suffering Messiah that was going to come and, and die? All these types of prophecies. And I wouldn't doubt, even though I can't prove it, I wouldn't doubt if Daniel's influence has head Jack Daddy over the whole land under both kings could, could then be the one teaching these wise men concerning the Hebrew belief systems, the Hebrew God, the Hebrew Messiah to come. And these guys, experiencing life with Daniel, and everything else going on in their land, as the generations go down, these guys believe the Bible to be true. Can't prove it, but I think that's, I'm, that's where I'd put my, uh, my money in terms of how these guys came to believe it. Because unless God appeared to them in a visionary dream and told them prior, there, there, we wouldn't, there's no other means by which we can think of, at least I can think of, that they would know this stuff. But there's no record in Scripture of, any, of God appearing to these men to pass on these truths. So how do their gifts reflect their belief about Jesus Christ? Well, gold, as uh, <clears throat> Josiah rightly said, is a symbol of kingship. Symbol of kingship. And throughout history, both past and present, gold has always been considered the most valuable and precious of metals. In fact, we have in our culture a saying that's called the gold standard. The gold standard, it's the, it's the reality of, of what's a monetary system that all other currency is measured against and defined by. But gold in biblical times, because of its extreme value, was associated with royalty and kingship. Now look at 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 2. 
This is after uh, Joab defeated the Ammonites and uh, King David was in power. It says that David took the crown of their king from his head and he found it to weigh a talent of gold. And there was a precious stone in it and it was placed on David's head. So the kings wore gold crowns. It was known in the ancient world that that's what kings wore. How about the temple and all the utensils and all the furniture in the temple? Everything was made out of gold. The Ark of the Covenant, gold. Table for bread, gold. Altar for incense, gold. All the utensils, gold. Even the walls of the inner sanctuary were completely covered in gold. And this was God's dwelling place, king of the universe, and obviously picture of royalty. So when, this, when these, when these um, magi brought this gift of gold, it was a statement saying, we understand you to be a king. And it does say in verse 2, where is the king of the Jews? They, they knew who they were coming to worship and who, what they, who they believed he was to be. But here's what's, I think, fascinating about this. Look at their response in their worship. In verse 11, we see them falling to their ground to worship him. So before their king, they're making themselves subject to him. And remember, they're in a place of royalty. They're in a place of high position. And yet they don't think anything of bowing themselves before this Jesus, this Jewish king in, in the lowly conditions. But, they not only, but not only was their worship shown in their humility, it actually was shown in their finances. <laughs> it cost them something. They believed that the financial contributions was part of worship. They offered him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are costly things. It wasn't for enough for them to sing worship songs and raise their hands in the air and go like this as an act of worship. For them, it was to get on their knees, or, or maybe even on their faces, worship the king of kings, and they offered him monetary compensation. It, caught, it hit them in their pocketbook. Very, very interesting in terms of how they understood worshiping a king. How about the gift of frankincense? Well, the frankincense was a symbol of his priesthood. Like, Jesus was a priest. Frankincense, I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's a gum-type resin and sap that comes from specific trees found in the Middle East and around the Horn of Africa. You retrieve it the same way as you do maple syrup, where you, like, you, you cut it, cut into the tree, cut into the bark, and this like, resin would pour out, and you collect it like maple syrup. But it's known for its incredible fragrance, and it was very valuable. But what's interesting about it for us in terms of context is frankincense was always associated with the priests who served in the temple. It was always associated with the priesthood in the temple. Now as far as I could see in my studies, whenever frankincense was used, it's whenever the priests were to make intercession for the people in terms of giving thanks and praise to God. And here's, I'll give you two uses of it. First was in the use of it in the sacrifices but not animal sacrifices, in food sacrifices and grain offerings. Consider Leviticus 2, 1 to 3. He says, Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and shall take from his handful of his fine flour 
and of its oil with all its frankincense, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. So frankincense was put on the grain offerings, and then the priest would offer it up as a memorial to God, remembering, giving thanks and praise for what? His provisionary care. Sin offerings and stuff like that were to, were to remember his salvation and the need for forgiveness. The grain offerings were a means of thanking him for provisionary care. But the priests were to do that and frankincense was to be poured on the offering because it smelled so good. So when it would go up into the air, it was like people were giving thanks to God for what he'd done for them. And so God would smell this and it was a pleasing aroma to him. The second use uh, of frankincense within the temple and the priests was that of incense. And it was the priest's job to make and prepare incense out of frankincense. Consider Exodus 30, 34 to 38. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stactate, and anaka, and galbamum, spices with pure frankincense. Therefore, sorry, there shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall bear or beat some of it with very fine and, uh, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of the meeting where I'll meet you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense you shall make, you shall not make it in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use with perfume shall be cut off from his people. God wasn't kidding when he said that you're to treat uh, this incense holy and to make the concoction of that to be burned for incense holy, um, or you'll be cut off. Uh, I don't know if you remember this story in Leviticus chapter 10, but Aaron's, Aaron was the head priest of Israel. He was really the first priest. God appointed him. His sons burned strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10.1. They made their own concoction of frankincense and incense mixtures and burned it on the altar. And what was their punishment? They were killed. <laughs> God took their lives. He said, you don't mess around with this thing. That's how much frankincense and, and uh, the way they offered this incense was important to the Lord. Because the burning of incense was symbolic of these prayers, of the prayers of the people rising before God. And this was an act of worship. This incense, this incense perpetually going up to God was symbolic of, of this open communication between God and man uh, as a priest being an intermediary for, before them. And this was to be a sweet fragrance in God's eyes. And when these guys were making up their own concoctions, it was not a sweet fragrance anymore because they were in disobedience to God's command. But the key here is that these priests, are to, of course, were to intercede on behalf of the people. And frankincense was always associated with the priesthood and bringing offerings of praise and thanksgiving. So when the Magi brought the gift of frankincense, it's not just because it was valuable, it was because it was symbolic of their recognition, recognition of him being a priest. Now, I don't know for sure if they, they, they thought, if they understood fully how he was going to intercede between man and God. Like, I don't know if they understood the atonement and everything like that. I, I don't know what was in their mindset. But clearly from the gift, they recognized that he was some, in some way going to intercede between God and man. And ultimately through what we've understood now is that it's through his work on the cross that he's opened up a door of reconciliation and allowed us to commune with him. The final gift then was that of myrrh. And that was symbolic of him being a savior. 
Myrrh is similar to frankincense in that it's a, in that it's a gum type resin that comes from a tree found in the Middle East and it's used, for, it's used for things like perfume and incense as well. But like frankincense, myrrh was also associated with the priesthood. It was used as one of the primary ingredients in oil that priests used for anointing objects in the temple as well as each other for service. And you know what anointing means in the Bible. It's symbolic that a person has been set apart for a specific task by God. But myrrh also has other uses. It was used to embalm dead bodies for burial. You would take strips of linen and lace them with myrrh and other spices to help mask the smell and whatnot. And we see this actually in John 19. Uh, it says, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who early had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in, and with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. So when you understand the use of myrrh in Jewish times, you see the significance of the Magi's gift. It was used to anoint people. And it's, like they're, it's almost like symbolically they're anointing him with the specific task that God has for him. And with it being a, bur a burial uh, spice or a burial um, oil, it's like they're, they're basically saying to him, we understand that one of your anointing purposes is going to involve death. It's going to involve your death. It's like a prophetic gift to say you're going to die as part of your anointing. It's going to be sacrificed as part of your life. So I think what, I don't know again how much they understood of the prophecies and what the Messiah was going to accomplish, but it's like they're saying this to him, you're not just a king and priest, you're also the savior of the world. <coughs> so what are we to learn from the Magi, especially during this Christmas season? I think there's, Two primary lessons. One will be short and one will, the second will be a little bit longer. The first one is this. The gospel has always been open to the Gentiles. Think about this. These wise men come from Babylon, Media, 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 um, Media and Persia. This is like this Eastern culture. Who were the first people to recognize the Messiah? Not the Jewish people. The Gentile people. They responded to a star they saw probably two years earlier and started like watching it and making a, a move towards Jerusalem. In the Gospel of, of Matthew, as we read here, the people of Jerusalem aren't responding to the birth of Christ the same way the Magi are. They're the first people to show up or respond like months and months even before the shepherds knew. They responded to the gospel message before the shepherds even did. It just took them time for travel and whatnot, but they were the first people to understand it. And so what we learn here is that God, through the scriptures, is communicating to people throughout the world. And the gospel has not always been just for the Jewish people initially, it was for the Gentiles as well. And it's a beautiful picture to remember that at Christmas time, because the birth of the Savior is for the salvation of the entire world, not just the Jewish people. But the second lesson, I think, as we study the gifts, is that at this time of the season, what we can learn from the Magi is that we're to acknowledge Jesus Christ as our King, our Priest, and our Savior this season. We acknowledge Him as our King, our priest and savior, and all of them have three different functions, or three, three different roles. Okay, so the wise men brought him gold. 
They brought him gold. We can't bring him gold. But what was the symbolic act of gold? He's a king. He's a king. That's the symbolic act of gold. How do you and I demonstrate in our lives that Jesus is king in our lives? Well, like every king, you, come under, you, come on, you make yourself subject to a king. <laughs> you come under the authority of a king. And so really, in the, in, in, the, in the scriptures, in the New Testament teaching, how you know you make king in your life is by the way you live in response to him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will follow my commands and obey me. Our obedience to him, the way we live in accordance to commands, is illustrations of, our, of, of whether he is our king in our lives or not. So to, we can't give him gold, but we can bring him our, our sold-out life in, in relation to his commands. And that resembles gold for us. So some of us have had a rocky year this year. Patches of strung-out disobedience to the Lord, willful sin, all these types of things. Why not make this Christmas season a time for renewal? A time of complete surrender. A time to come underneath the kingship of Jesus Christ. How about responding to him as priest? The wise men bought him frankincense. Understanding his priestly role. For us... To recognize him as priest is to recognize that he did some intercessory work for us on our behalf. He came to earth, left heaven, came to earth in order to be with us so that he could share in what it was to be human, so that he could ultimately die for our sin. And through that death and that intercession, he allowed us to have communion in God and that God would receive our worship. I love Hebrews 4.15. It says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things and without, without sin. Notice the reference in being of a high priest here. He came down to earth so we could experience what we did, so that we could relate to him. Now it's interesting that he did this so that we could relate to him. Because one of the things that the, the, the incense and the, and the grain offerings were to do were to offer praise and thanksgiving. So maybe if we respond to him correctly at Christmas time as our priest, we thank him for his intercession on our, on, uh, on, um, our behalf. But it allows us to give him thanks and praise for opening up a door of communication between us and God, that he'll accept our worship. The reason why God hears our prayers is because Christ was a priest for us. The reason why he accepts our financial gifts is because he was a priest for us. So again, we can respond to him as a priest, Giving it, having an opportunity to give praise and thanksgiving to God for all that He is and all that He's done for us. And the third gift of myrrh. They brought Him myrrh, the wise men did, which was a symbolic of His burial, His death, which to us, the words we understand is the word Savior. It was through His death and resurrection He became our Savior. So again, but this Christmas, what we can do is just acknowledge Him again once as our Savior. Remembering what He did for us, His love for us. And how, what this means to us in terms of our eternity with the Lord is in the future. So, hopefully, going out to those, you, you, uh, those kids again, 
hopefully the understanding of the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh will understand why the wise men brought those gifts and why Lego Technic and, and little horses weren't, wouldn't suffice for Jesus Christ. <laughs> they might suffice for our kids, but they, the, the wise men understood uh, a little bit more the, about him in terms of the, the prophecies and scriptures they've been exposed to and they knew how to honor and worship him appropriately. So why don't we uh, do the same as well?